0: I'm Mel Stewart, and this is the Swim Podcast. Joining me today, we have a critically acclaimed author, a nonfiction book. It's a book that if you haven't heard about this book and you're in swimming, you need to crawl out from underneath that rock and pay attention. This book dropped, and everybody's talking about it, The Waterman, The Birth of American Swimming and One Young Man's Fight to Capture Olympic Gold, published by Valentine Books, an imprint of Penguin Random House. Today, we have Michael Loind a member of the International Society of Olympic Historians and an Olympic lecturer. Um, If you're out there and you're curious, you want to press pause, you want to go buy this book now because you're in, you're sold. Go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble or go to your local bookstore. This is a big book. It's everywhere. Hey, buddy. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Mel. I appreciate it, man. It's great to see you. I, I'm I'm this is this is confession of sins time. I'm going to confess my sins to you and you'll 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 let me know if I'm OK or not. Um, my understanding of swim history is experience. My I'm 53 years old. My understanding of swim history goes back to Mark Spitz and 72. And in his seven Olympic gold medals, nine total considering 1968, it all it also goes back to Weissmuller, Johnny Weissmuller, and Buster Crab from the golden era of Hollywood. Only because as a child I watched Tarzan and Flash Gordon. And buddy, I am jealous. You found this piece of history that is this is this is you found narrative gold in in, in Charles Daniels, this underdog story, America's first Olympic gold medal. Uh, yeah. so when you found this. When you found this, you know, did you know in that, in, in that moment, so nobody's written this book. It's like, did you know in that moment, oh, I'm writing this book?
1: Well, well you know what? So I found it, it doing, we were doing some work on the 1904 Olympics, which was the third Olympiad. And, and that was in St. Louis, which is where I'm from. And we were just doing some history stuff. We were working with the uh, International Olympic Committee to get a Olympic ring sculpture at Washington University because that's where the track and field was. And we thought we'd do some research on some athletes there. And you know, track and field was the main focus. But I thought, you know, they had swimming. Let me let me just see what's there. And I came across a guy named Charles Daniels. Now, if you ask me who Charles Daniels was, my idea was a hat and a beard and a fiddle, right? You know. And uh, I said, gosh, you know, this guy won the first gold medal of swimming i said that's kind of interesting third olympian i just assume that united states has always been amazing in swimming because we're just that good um and then it's it's like you dig a little deeper and you're like gosh you won five medals here then you dig a little more and it's like wait a second this guy invented the freestyle invented excuse me invented the freestyle like that was actually invented in in the last century and uh, then all this stuff started coming out. And once I saw the, the structure of how we were so bad at the time, only about a dozen pools in the entire country, nobody swam, the freestyle wasn't yet invented, England and Australia and Europe were just dominant, I, I was, oh, there, there's, there's something here. And what really tipped it into, I, you know, I definitely thought it would make a great article, What really tipped it into the story was when I started finding nuggets about his family history, about his dad kind of being the Bernie Madoff of the day and them getting thrown out of society. And he basically had to use swimming to to, you know, redeem his family name. And he dealt with anxiety and all kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh, this this checks all the dots for for all the, uh, you know, big moments that you want in a book or, you know, that you always go to the underdog movies to see. And uh, yeah, then, then that's when the hairs on the back of your neck prick up and you're like, Oh my gosh, how does nobody know about this story?
0: And it was just so
1: much fun to research and write.
0: It's um, what was astounding is it, it's a first gold medal in swimming. Um, but based on my research, you won eight total. Is that correct at the Olympic games?
1: He did. If you're including the Athens games in 1906, which at the time were considered Olympic games. But then the founder, Pierre Coubertin, because they were an off year and he didn't agree with these Athens games, eventually scrubbed them out and said, nah, they're just intercalated games.
0: And we Well, well uh, let's 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 well will we're going to share something here that we have. A, we have a mutual friend, Bruce Weigel. Bruce Weigo is the resident historian for all of swimming, as far as most anyone's concerned. He's a sweetheart, and I love this guy. Um, he's like, you know, no, Mel. No, no. He won eight. He goes, he goes for being fair on on the stage. It's eight medals, and what was astounding was that, you know, shame on you for not knowing, but this was the greatest performance um, until Mark Spitz, till the Spitz era. Yeah, and so you know he was the greatest for six, nearly going on seven decades. That's right. Which is which is uh, it's pretty eye popping, and and I and I was like, how do I not know this? You know, when you look back into his, when you're an Olympic champion and you feel like you know your history, you're like, yeah, the Olympic Games started in 1896, and. Uh, you, you know, you, you remember Duke Kamanomoku and, and why smaller this little pieces of history, you, you went in and you opened up this moment in time. And uh, I, I liked your answer on when you knew you were going to write this because it, it's what you found was timeless truth. Um, the timeless truth is this, and it's a sneaking suspicion I've always had, but I never understood it until I was in middle age. It's that um, it's almost unnatural for people to achieve at a certain level. There's always something going on. There's always something dark in their history. There's something broken. There's some sort of trauma. And you and uh, I would look at certain athletes and say, like, you know what? I, that person, I hate them. They're an artist. They're just talented and beautiful. They they look like they're you know Picasso's. You know, just just making this beautiful painting in the water, and they just it just comes naturally. And when I find out eventually, is that no, there's something going on, and they've escaped to the pool to do something amazing because they're they're escaping from something harsh and dark. This is in the story, so you this timeless thing happened at the very beginning, and uh, that's a truth that people should know. And when they read what this this narrative that you've put down that you've chronicled, it's they're reading something that is timeless truth. Can you explain? the, the dysfunction that, that, you know, the era to explain the era and explain the dysfunction that he, that he, that he lived through. Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. And, and Mel, like you said, I mean, like all great at, at, at the bottom of every great underdog story, like especially sports narrative, it's never about sports. If it's going to be great, it's never about sports. It's about the grit and the personal struggle. And that's like, you know, when we watch the Olympics now and we get the little vignettes of what the, the individual athletes came from right? That's what really locks us in. And we want to see them succeed because there's some personal struggle and it could be, you can name a bunch of things. It doesn't even have to be with sports. In fact, most times it's not, um, that just, just transcends everything. And so back then the, the times was, there were two things going on here. Number one, swimming was non-existent. Nobody swam, um, if you read the book, you'll you'll find out why. There, there's, there's a whole history behind it. A lot of it had to do with Puritanism and people in states of undress that just weren't proper. So, so nobody really swam, especially in the United States. There was only about 12 pools in the entire country at the time that were year round competitive. Most of those were in elite athletic clubs. So weren't accessible by the public. Women, and this is the other where women, because it was Victorian era, and they had to wear, you know, they were mostly seen in gowns, you see from the neck to the ankles to the wrist, you know, to cover all their skin, so not to um, stoke male uh, passions or anything like that, and they had the same restrictions on swimming, and so many women drowned, even just getting into ankle high, you know, knee high water, because the waves would come in and rope all this, you know, 13 pounds of fabric around them and drag them down and they couldn't get up. And um, it was just tragic. And it was swimming. And really the invention of the freestyle stroke by Charles Daniels that opened the doors for women to finally not wear these gowns because you couldn't perform the freestyle on them, nor could you swim properly anyway, which also opened the door for the women's rights movement because then they started to be able to wear skirts, little you a know, little more revealing dresses. And it opened the door for women in athletics because before then they could not compete because you couldn't see a woman's sweat. So if you look at any of the sports that women were in, it was golf, it was tennis, and it was archery. And they're in full gowns, a lot of times in big hats. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it looks absolutely ridiculous. And swimming was really the first anaerobic thing where they were working hard and could sweat because in the water, you didn't see them sweat, right? Because they were just bathed in water anyway. And it opened up the whole door for women to compete in athletics in a way that never happened before. A lot of that, and Killer Kellerman from Australia was a huge proponent and activist, and one of the first to break through that barrier by wearing a men's swimsuit. And her famous line is I can't, you know, I can't swim wearing more clothes that you put on a clothesline, more fabric than you put on a clothesline. Um, so she wore a men's swimsuit and was just a, a brilliant spokesman, so charming that nobody could really um,
0: scold her too bad. With, but, our, current, with our current Supreme Court, those, oh. those suits could come back at any moment. It's <laughs> <He's laughs> scary. I, <know. laughs> I, 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 I don't mean to pull you out of your narrative. I, I would like to. It, it's it everything everything in the waterman is is a is is a discovery it's it's it is you are an archaeologist in in this world and it's um it's i think a lot of young readers will appreciate it but if you're you know if you're someone of a certain age maybe you're over 50 you're really going to love it the uh as as i understood it in, in in the 1900s it was uh it was swimming for a period of time was what, was what poor people did and it was dirty. And then it was, uh, but it eventually became high society. And uh, was this, was this the, God, was this the robber baron era? It was probably a little bit after
1: it was on the end of the Victorian era, the end of the, you know, the golden age of the gilded age, I guess. You know, it was right on the edge there. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you, if you think about it, so the people who swam, it was for bathing more than anything. You know, people who lived in tenement houses—where you, can you imagine not having a bath in your house? You know, if if you bathed, you had to bring in a tub from from the the latrine out, you know, the water pump outside, if you even had a good pump. And that's how cholera—and that's how cholera spread and became a a pandemic because people were doing this. And in the early 1800s, that's how bathhouses began, just to clean people off in England. And to promote cleanliness, and that's how competitive swimming was actually born. Because as soon as these bathhouses were put in, people started racing back and forth in England. And um, you know, they were—it was a sport in England probably 75 years really before it even started here in the United States. Where.
0: I did, I did want to bring you back to this this point. I mentioned that, uh, that elites, um, you know, typically if you look into their past, you look closely enough, there is something that's going on. That's a, there's, there's some trauma or there's some dysfunction okay. or there, there's anxiety or there's, there, there's something going on. Uh, you know, I, I, on the surface, Charles Daniels didn't have this. He was born into privilege. Uh, and, um, but it, that, was a, that was a facade. Can you explain a little bit? You don't have to give it all away, but can you give, a, give us a little bit of, of, of what he was dealing with in his family? Yeah. yeah.
1: So he, he came from a very well-off family in Buffalo. So they were in the society pages. His one grandfather was a New York Supreme Court justice. Congressman started the law school there. His other one owned one of the biggest department stores there. So they were very well-off. And his parents were in that whole crowd They got married. His dad eventually becomes kind of the Bernie Madoff of the day uh, when they moved to New York City. And you think about back then, you know, you didn't have radio, you didn't have TV. Newspapers were pretty local, but a few things would make national headlines. His was one of them that went all across the country um, because he was defrauding so many people from all over. And it just it threw them out of society. Now, yeah, not to give too his. Father had walked out on him and his mom a few years before, but because women could really not get a divorce. If you did, you were really had no access into society. There was very few jobs you could take to make money. His father gave him zero support when he walked out. He actually disowned them, acted like they didn't, weren't even alive anymore. And, uh, and so they put up this facade that, he was still living with them and, and that they were still in intact marriage. So when this broke new national news, uh, they were completely thrown out of society and even worse because they were shown to be kind of liars in a way um, to try to keep them in society. And the only place Charles Daniels could go that was remotely acceptable, he was a teenager at the time, was the basement pool of the New York Athletic Club because it was just a bunch of misfits. Again, swimming wasn't a thing back then, and the the members of the club didn't really keep tabs on their athletic members, swimmers who were given memberships just because they were good athletes. Uh, and is that and,
0: pool the same pool? Is it still is it still there?
1: No. So the the New York Athletic Club, although it's an old building, I think the building was built in the 1920s. This building was the one right
0: before then it's,
1: it's similar, but not, not
0: the same. Not the I, same. Had, I had to ask cause I've, I've, I've spent some time in that pool. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. No. So it, it's, it's a different
0: one. It's a, it's a
1: different, one. a lot nicer <laughs> back, back then, you know, that the fight, you know, they didn't have chlorine. You know, if you wanted to clean the pool out, you had to drain it and fill it back up. I mean, that was the other thing. There was no gutters, no lane lines, no nothing. It was pretty brutal for these people to be swimming <laughs>
0: D- his father was, it um, was a Flander openly and your, yeah. in a, your, your identity was your father. Yeah. Um, but it was a, what I found interesting was this, you know, Charles, Charles has his own corner of history in Olympic sport. And it's a, it's a big chapter, which you've given back to us uh, in the waterman. But his first, his first experience with the water was, was, was traumatizing. Um, can you explain that? Because that, that's something that I've heard a few times from Olympians that um, their first their first touch with water is is a bad experience and they have to overcome that. What was his?
1: Yeah. So, again, he suffered from anxiety, which back then what they called nervousness. And th- that part of psychiatry was in its infancy. It was only a couple decades old. So they really didn't know how to treat it. You know, some of the things they'd give to people who had nervousness was cocaine and laudanum and, you know, all kinds of morphine. Right. Exactly. And, uh, you know, just and if you're a woman because they were domesticated, you know, looked at that way, you had to stay in bed. You're just overworked. So you have to stay in bed for weeks at a time. If you had money, you went to a sanatorium. And if if you were a man, you needed to get in the outdoors. You needed to do manly things. If you had money, you go out west and rope cattle like Teddy Roosevelt did to overcome his anxiety. Uh, so Charles Daniels was very anxious. He was not good in sports at the time, although he had the underpinnings of being an athlete. He was just too nervous to express that. His father was one of the few people who actually knew how to swim back then. They grew up on Buffalo, so he somehow was self-taught on Lake Erie and he basically marched him to one of the few public pools well not public You had to pay it was a private pool but you can get access to and he threw him in and just said basically said swim and back then you were almost on like on a fishing line so he was tethered to a pole that his father was holding and you know the quote that he said was i i swallowed enough water to to drown a warship Um, And it was a traumatic experience. They said he never wanted to get near water again. And really, I think the thing that kind of pushed him towards it was his father was such a narcissist and just a very tough individual. And he wanted to try to connect with them. And he thought water swimming was possibly the way to do it. So I think that was one of his biggest motivators to get good at swimming.
0: This wasn't a touchy feely relationship. <laughs> no, this wasn't, a, this wasn't a warm relationship. <laughs> no, it was it was it was not
1: very pleasant. And you know, as you read in the book, uh, it it was an ongoing issue with him and his father, and ultimately Charles worrying about being linked to his dad when he started getting more famous, um, which became a real problem because his father continued. Uh, uh you know, to be kind of the, uh, swindler of things. So
0: kept eluding the law. <laughs> narcissists as we, they, narcissists are in the news a lot.
1: You know, they, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? <laughs> narcissists
0: are in the news a lot and okay. they are damaging. They just, it's just a firestorm all, you know, behind them.
1: They are tough personalities.
0: <laughs> They're very tough personalities. The, uh, so it's, it, I find that I find that very interesting about his story, and 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 and, 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 fa- and relationships with fathers can be very complicated. It seemed as though, even though this, they had this dysfunction, they had this weird relationship. He he still wanted, in certain ways, to 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 gain his father's approval, even though his father was this this bad man. He did,
1: and. And I think that's so relatable for any of us, right? You wanna connect with your parents. You wanna have a relationship with your parents. You wanna connect with, you know, You wanna feel worthy of their love and he walked out on them. And you know, another great relationship story in this is just he and his mother and what they had to go through and what his mother did to try to help them through this, not having a father with all society against them. And it's a real tribute to her and to him and how they both kind of held hands and pushed each other up when they needed, when they each needed it and how they, you know, eventually, uh, you know, punched through the, punched through the wall and, uh, you know, make it out of this horrible, horrible
0: situation. Um, you know, so again, a real tribute to mothers as well. It's um, we all stand the, uh, the sport of swimming always stands on, on mom's shoulders. <laughs> some the, uh, so, help help our our listeners under have some context on this because it, and it's uh, and I might be getting into this the wrong way. You know, war is. We, I feel like we're we're returning to the 1960s, seventies, and eighties in the Cold War. Yeah, uh, Russia's Russia was uh, it's international Yeah, <laughs> you know, we've we we've, we knocked them out of going to World Championships. Which it's like, will they be at the Olympic Games? It's kind of you know, yeah. are we going back to 90, the nineteen eighty boycott? Pierre de Coubertin started the the modern Olympics, uh, and and if I you can tell me if I'm doing this correctly, but it's his. You know, the mission was um, we had gone through so many wars for so long in Europe. He wanted to have this safe space where we could meet and and compete in in a place where if we if we rub shoulders, um, we'd be less likely to to want to kill each other. Um, yeah, tell me about. The, the, this era of the modern Olympics and the launch, and and this is like a startup. You know, it's <laughs> well, how did it go in you know eighteen ninety six and nineteen oh four and yeah. I mean, so Pierre de Coubertin was French, and
1: France was you know was one of the world's great powers, but wasn't really. It was really waning at the time. Germany had marched in, and and you know Paris fell and. And that was one of his big influencers. And he, he was trying to figure out a way to get France back on, uh, back to being the top dog, or you know, at least at that table. And he tried to inject sports into France, and the French just weren't really into sports. So he resisted doing the Olympics until he just kept hitting wall after wall. And the Olympics actually came from England, um, a doctor there. Uh, who had done it for almost 50 years?
0: What? Yes. I'm. 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 Uh. So I bought the propaganda. It's. So you're saying Pierre de Coubertin is is really not the father of the modern Olympic Games? He he got the idea
1: from a doctor in Much Winlock, England, um, who had been doing it for 50 years. He was a he was a, a Greek nut, and used it to kind of uh start uh just help make his people healthier right mm-hmm. um so he'd do these annual games and at one point they actually rose to the point where they were done in London and it was all of England came to compete in them but the amateur societies didn't like that because amateurism was a gentleman's sport and this guy was opening it up to everybody so they shut him down and pushed the games back to his little town. And he reached out to Pierre de Coubertin and said, Hey, you're really interested in English sports. Why don't you come see these Olympic games? And after a year or so of Pierre de Coubertin thinking about it, he said, no, this is what I want to do because he saw if France can't get strength through athletics. Perhaps they could get peace through athletics. And he saw them as a way to bring all these nations together and, um, even warring nations and hopefully get a better understanding of each other and compete in peace. And that was his big, uh, motivation. But one of the big problems with the Olympics back then international travel wasn't very easy. So a lot of people thought they were odd, uh, England who was the father of sports. And they said, look, why do we have to listen to this Frenchman? If you want to compete against the best in the world, come to England, we have annual championships. So England really wanted no part in the Olympics, and their early presence in those games were all funded by the athletes themselves, not by any uh, Olympic committee in England. So, and that didn't happen until 1908, till England got behind it and did the London Games.
0: That, you got granular on that, and I really appreciate. That's completely changes how I that, my understanding of the Olympic Games and the movement. How funny is that? Because when when you think about. Uh, the Brits and you think about sport, I think about elitism and I think about, oh yeah, it's a gentleman's sport to keep the poor out. Yeah. And that's, uh, but I didn't think about, oh wow, they had this long history and really this, this, this model had was, was started in, in, in uh, by, in in, by a Brit. I love that. (laughs) And no, that's, uh, I I love that. So, so tell me this. So we, and so 19, uh, excuse me, 1896, there's Athens, 1900, the Olympics are in Paris. So by t- by 1904, when they're in St. Louis, um, for some reason the Olympics are like this could be the last Olympics. Why, yeah. why is that? Why why was why was this? Why was there this fear that okay, 1904 could be the last Olympic games we ever had? This is something that we've grown to love. It's become an institution. I know, crazy,
1: right? It, it's uh, two reasons for that. Number one, the Paris games were awful. Um, They were conducted by the world's fair committee in paris and they did not build any venues for the games um so like track and field was out on a on a field with a tree in the middle of it you know that the runners had to run through and everything like that Um, nobody really came nobody showed up they didn't even call them olympic games uh swimming was in in the river there which is you know, that was par for the course back then. They really didn't have swimming pools. Uh, and they were just a disaster. And, and everybody who came there said so. Uh, nobody wanted them after that, really. America was the only one who was clamoring for it because we th- thought as a way to compete against the British, maybe, if we can lure them here and we wanted to stick one to the British. Um, and And so they came here. And again, travel was so difficult. And, and Pierre Coubertin really did this for Europe, to, to, to bring Europe together, not America. He didn't really care very much about America. But the 1904 Games is really what introduced them to the United States, because in 1904, the World's Fair was in St. Louis. And 60 to 70 percent of the country was still rural. They were farmers. It was an agricultural uh, country. And so they wouldn't have access to a lot of things going on in the world. So they came by train. You know, there was, I, I think there was 30 million people there and they all got a got a little taste of what the Olympics were like. And that was really the, and after those 1904 games, America was all in on the Olympics. Uh, so that it really introduced them to the United States, which was a huge boon. Even though Pierre de Coubertin was like, ah, eh, you know, they're America; it doesn't matter whatever happens over there. Uh, but then that really energized it. America was all set to go. Britain, because we won so many medals over here, and they really didn't compete, were a little, little. Their nose was a little out of place, so they wanted to host the 1908 games, and that's really when the Olympics started the way we know it today.
0: So it, that's interesting. So the the Olympic. The Olympics, as we know them, wasn't really born until it came back to London in 1908. And, yeah. and it was really pride and ego. Yeah. It was. Yeah. The, the The
1: England's hand was finally forced because, you know, again, they said, you know, we're the best athletes. If you want to come, you know, to compete in our championships, go ahead. But, you know, Charles Daniels was one of the biggest instigators of that because they dominated swimming for almost a century, and they thought there was no way this lowly American, this laughing stock swim program, could put any competitor up there. And he went over to England by himself in one of their championships and whipped up on them. And they they denied his time. Oh, you know this is this is a fluke. They said it was because he was such a good turner. But he you know swimming he was still subpar. Uh, and but he was one that really pressured them. Um, which is again why they built one of the reasons they built a hundred meter pool at the Olympic Stadium, which eliminated him from turning in the hundred meter race, which was a whole nother, <laughs> whole nother story and an amazing, amazing against all odds moment for him.
0: Um, Americans have, you know, we've dominated in swimming. Swimming, you know, we have, we're actually going to have a ninth day, not, not just doing eight days, we're going to do nine days of swimming. At the next Olympic Games in Paris in 2024, yeah. that, there's one reason for that: is because swimming, do, it swimming is 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 drives the revenue and yeah. uh, television rights and TV time. So magically, right. we mean, have an extra more events and one more day. Love it. It's I second- mean,
1: I, I I love it. You know, that's one of the top thing. You know, I. I'm good friends with Jackie Joyner Kersey and and I secretly go, you know, I really watch it from swimming, and then I watch the, I watch the track and field. But um, I, I just, I, they're, they're amazing, and and again back then our Olympic committee didn't even want to sponsor swimmers, and it wasn't until Charles Daniels stepped up and forced them, you know, he was very vocal about it uh, to start sponsoring swimmers that they finally accepted that. But it was a secondary sport, and now it's probably the top-ranked, you know, at least the top-watched sport in the Summer Olympic Games.
0: It is the top-watched sport. That's why we have the. That's why, why we're having the ninth day. It's why right. it, it comes so early in in the program. You know, since uh, s- since the time of the Waterman, uh, <laughs> Americans have won five hundred and seventy-eight medals. Um, Australia, I, I think they come they come in second, and they're less than half that, like with two twelve. It might be a little higher. I have to go check our numbers, but those are roughly correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just it's it's yeah it's 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 crazy. I mean i I saw a
1: stat. I think as of the not the most recent ones, but I'm sure it hasn't changed. We've won more gold medals than the next eleven countries combined. I mean that's unheard of. That's ridiculous. You know, it's,
0: it's just incredible. So it's um, I didn't know the Brits were so sneaky and like and that. And then it was almost like this this sense of pride or maybe just a little bit of shame that that, that 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 took them back to the table in 1908. And that's where the Olympics really started, as we know them today. Did they do anything? So they did the 100 meter pool because he was a great turner. Did they do anything else? What else? What else? Did they do anything, anything sneaky to Charles? <laughs> yes, they did. Yes, didn't they you, did. You, know. you don't have to give everything away. Can you tease it? Well, you know, again,
1: they did not want this American to win on British soil in front of, you know, 50,000, 60,000 people. So they, and England took great pride in their dominance on the water. They, you know, a fourth of the globe was under their empire and they ruled the seas. They had the biggest Navy by far, you know, bigger than the next two combined. Um, So swimming was a real point of pride to them. And to ensure that he didn't win and certainly didn't set a world's record, uh, you know, again, and you read this in the first two pages of the, of the book, it's in the prelude, so I'm not giving too much away. Uh, you will see that they, the cadence, they didn't do a gun, England didn't, they said on your mark, get set, go. And they've all, they always did that. And get set was more a question to the athletes, like, are you ready? And they'd make sure everybody was ready, and then they'd say go. Well, in the gold medal round because Charles. They changed. They told everybody that they were going to change the cadence, except Charles Daniels, to on your mark, go. So yeah, so you can only imagine what happened, and uh, you can read the book to find find out. But it's it was it was
0: crazy that that actually happened, but it did. That's shady. <laughs> yeah, really yeah. shady. I'm, I'm, I'm changed. I, I've formed an all new opinions about my British friends. <laughs> They've gotten a lot better since then. Right, so are you? Are, are you? I'm, I'm sure. You know, but uh, it's uh, you with you with a huge publishing house. You have to be. Uh, you have to be sold over, over in the UK. I'm wondering how you sell selling in the UK. They need to read this. <laughs> you know, actually, believe it or not, the the rights have yet to be sold in the UK. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll we'll see how it goes. <laughs> they, they need to they need to read this book. I don't but know if it, you. I don't know if you. Okay, go ahead. I was going
1: to say, but it's great. It's a great history of England and and sports and swimming that they very much began and were a part of. Uh, so uh, I, I hope it. I hope it, they do get a chance to read it.
0: I think that, and in, in, out of respect for our, our, our British peers, um, you know they are not they are not the size of the United States, and they have been producing great talent since 2012. So kudos to them since they since they brought the Olympic Games back to to London again. Yes. Um, it's it's is there anything that I'm missing? Is there any is there any morsel from the Waterman that you would say you know I I, I swim swimming fans you need to this is something you might want to know that would push you to to go out there to Barnes and Noble or go to go over to Amazon or go to your local bookstore and make this buy. I think this is something that everybody should have on their coffee table.
1: I, 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 you know, I feel, I hope we made it thoroughly entertaining as far as this decade of America. Cause it's really a story about America. I mean, swimming, it, it's about the birth of a cultural institution, a movement swimming, that really changed America a lot, and and uh, that's what it's about. I mean, it's it's when America became America, and swimming was a part of that, and the Watermen, which includes Annette Kellerman, were a part of that, and um, you know, for women's rights and just sports in general, sports was still coming into its own, and that's I just found that time. american history just hasn't really been written about as much as we see like the great depression world war ii and all that kind of stuff um and it was it was the time when we became who we are uh today and i just found it so fascinating and again i love underdog stories i love the hope we get when we read underdog stories i love getting choked up when I read underdog stories. I love that sense of empowerment and I can do anything after you watch an underdog movie or or read a story like this. And, um, I, I was just happy, so excited that I, you know, that I was uh, uncovered this nugget by, um, pure happenstance and, uh, like you said, to put it out in the world, I, I just hope people really get to enjoy that and get to experience all those good feelings that we love. And my kids will tell you, underdog story. I will, if I, Hoosiers, Rudy, all those, I will cry by the you know, end. I'll have tears in my eyes. I'll be choked up. No matter. If I watch it fifty times. I'll still have that. And um, like I said, one of the one of the really cool things through this whole process, besides meeting a lot of my heroes growing up in the swimming world uh, was I got to meet Angelo Pizzo who wrote Hoosiers and Rudy, who read the book, loved it and um, reached out and we got to have lunch about a week ago. And one thing he told me, which Mel was told you earlier, he's like, Hey, you know, I grew up in Bloomington, Indiana and Doc Councilman was my neighbor. He goes, so I, I was over there when Spitz and all those guys were there. And, you know, back then it was Indiana and probably USC were just the two dominant swim teams and uh, quite, quite a time to be over there. And Doc Conselman is just a legend uh, in the sport. So uh, just really super cool. And, um, you know, again, I, it's nice. It's nice to hear somebody like Angelo Pizu who I've so looked up to and I probably, I told him, I, I said, you know, I watched Rudy 50 times when I was writing this book because I was, I was just reverse engineering it. Uh, in addition to Sea Biscuit and Boys in the Boat. So I, I'm glad it resonates like that.
0: Well, I believe in dreams. I believe in manifesting dreams. And I believe that when you have that faith, you have to put the works behind it. You delivered this book. And uh, so this is my dream for you. I dream that we're going to see this on the silver screen. We're going to see an adaptation that is worthy of the material and, uh, and, I, and I'd, I'd love to see some Oscar awards for something that is so pivotal, apparently, for U.S. history. To tell me, you know, did, I feel like you've given us swimming in a new way. It's like, hey, man, America became America. And a big part of that was one of our first our first swimming star. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And I, and I do. So starting what you said, making confessions. I have to confess, I'm not a very good swimmer. I swam growing up. I was a lifeguard. And through this whole process of getting to talk to, talk to all these Olympic swimmers like yourself, I'm like, wow, I was doing a lot of this stuff wrong. <laughs> my breathing technique. In fact, I was having lunch with John Naber last week out in LA. And then <laughs> I go to my mailbox the other day and he sent me a DVD that he did of how to swim properly, which I could definitely use. And I, I just joined our local master's team. So I, I hope to uh, hope to get more into it.
0: You're in good company. So let's stick a pin in this conversation and uh, we're going to revisit it. I think that we're, you know, I'm not saying when, but there might be a, an announcement sometime in the future, something new that's coming up that you can talk about publicly and we can revisit uh, the Waterman because I, I feel like it's going to go on and have another life in another medium. <laughs> but uh, thank you for thank you for coming on
1: uh thanks mel this is great a lot of fun thanks so much and thanks for all you do for swimming
0: you've been listening to the swim Swam podcast stay tuned for new episodes every week you can take swim swim podcast on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our youtube channel for more videos as well